Conservative? You bet. Controversial? Right again. It's time to squabble on The Jim Benson Show. Hello and welcome to another edition of The Jim Benson Show, conservative talk radio covering the issues that concern you here on the BBS radio network. Today, we'll continue looking at the wonderful world of communist China. You know, China, China, China must lead the new world order. China, China, China is an economic miracle. China, China, China is a model for the inevitable future world government. I'm talking about the communist Chinese party's governance of the Chinese people, not the Chinese people themselves who largely continue to struggle and suffer under the madness and evil of communism. And let's not forget the many brave and patriotic Americans and others of Chinese ancestry who are monitoring events there and revealing to the world what is happening in communist China. China's economy is, as the Gateway Pundit called it, a house of cards based on mountains of debt whose wealth created has fabulously enriched Western oligarchs and CCP officials and their families. It's an economy with rigid government control that was built with the aid of many billions in Western capital and characterized by wild speculation, such as that which has led to China's grossly overvalued real estate market, now on the verge of collapse. The CCP's policies have created an economic crisis that is coming to a head with massive layoffs and rising unemployment. These policies spurred on according to the principle of growth at any cost have also created an ecological apocalypse with a country mired in appalling land, water, and air pollution and running out of farmland for raising food and water that's fit to drink or even use for industrial purposes. Yet despite all this, and the fact that the CCP has clearly and repeatedly stated that its goal is to defeat the West and dominate the world, our Western globalist and oligarch elitists continue to push for ever more concessions to China, infusions of capital for it, and promotion of admiration for the CCP's supposed accomplishments. Hence, we have Microsoft founder Bill Gates, who's something like tripled his already fabulous net worth investing in vaccine manufacturing during the COVID pandemic, trying to help China develop new nuclear technology with military applications, and Cisco Systems executives helping the CCP destroy Chinese Falun Gong practitioners. The CCP for decades now has been using much of the money it acquired to infiltrate, influence, and corrupt the U.S. and other countries around the world, but particularly the U.S., which considers its main enemy. The former Georgi Swartz, now known as George Soros, referred to as the almighty leader of the globalists by detractors in Eastern Europe, and long a supporter and promoter of communist China, as well as other Marxist and communist causes, has of late become a strongly critical of the CCP regime, and particularly its leader, Xi Jinping. Soros and other Western globalists and oligarchs appear to be hoping for, or should I say conspiring, for a return to power of Xi's rival faction within the CCP, led by the aging Zhang Zemin and his relatives. This, they hope, will allow them and the CCP elites to return to making lots more money in China at the expense of the rest of the people of China, 
and the world. Here's some audio from YouTuber Lay's Real Talk, or, or Lay of Lay's Real Talk, that's the name of her channel, with her analysis of this situation. It's titled, George Soros Predicts Xi Jinping's Future, and it was posted February 8. Play soundbite one, please. The Chinese New Year is all about good fortune and an auspicious new beginning. But George Soros sent Xi Jinping an inauspicious message by speaking out against him on Chinese New Year's Eve. Soros predicted, contrary to popular belief, that Xi Jinping may not get a third term in the fall at the CCP's 20th National Congress. Why is Soros so against Xi Jinping and does his prediction carry any weight? Hello, welcome to Lay's Real Talk. I'm Lei. At the Hoover Institute's online event on January 31st, George Soros delivered a 23-minute pre-recorded speech trying to convince the world why Xi Jinping must go. The speech is similar to his three articles in 2021 calling Xi Jinping the most dangerous enemy of open societies. He said the Chinese real estate crisis, the pandemic, declining birth rate, and Xi's many political enemies will cost Xi his carefully orchestrated third term at the party's Congress this fall. Soros said that replacing Xi with someone less repressive would remove the greatest threat that open societies face today. Chinese commentators based outside of China generally attributed Soros' speech to his close relations with the faction of Jiang Zemin, Xi Jinping's political enemy. And everyone is aware that the two sides are engaged in an all-out power struggle. Watching Soros' video, I felt that the 91-year-old, who could barely read his script, was making a last-ditch effort to help the anti-Xi forces. I've already made two videos on the animosity between Xi and Soros, including his alleged role in the 2015 financial coup orchestrated by the Jiang faction against Xi. I'll provide the links at the bottom. You can take a look. But the problem is Soros isn't alone in his view on China. His comments are representative of the view shared by some of the U.S. business, political, and media elites. On January 28, 2021, a week after Biden took office, an anonymous former U.S. senior diplomat wrote a 20,000-word article titled The Longer Telegram Toward a New American-China Strategy which suggests that the United States should partner with anti-Xi forces within the CCP to overthrow him so that Sino-U.S. relations can return to pre-Xi Jinping era. This group believes that by having China return to Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms and opening up, the CCP will become acceptable again and can coexist with the West. They see Xi as the guy who stands in their way. Soros said, in contrast to Deng Xiaoping, Xi Jinping is a true believer in communism. Mao Zedong and Vladimir Lenin are his idols. But is that claim valid? Is the world better off if Xi Jinping is replaced by someone from Jiang Zemin's faction? There are several misconceptions we need to clarify. First of all, the belief that Deng Xiaoping was a benign leader is far from being true. Deng Xiaoping personally carried out many of Mao's deadly policies and stood by Mao during his unpopular years. Mao ordered lethal political campaigns against his enemies, 
and then ordered a military crackdown on the peaceful student protesters. While Deng Xiaoping allowed economic reforms, he refused political reforms. During his time and the time of his two chosen successors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, human rights conditions in China continued to deteriorate, including the Tiananmen Square massacre, the persecution of the Tibetans, and the persecution of Falun Gong, and so on. Secondly, the difference between Xi Jinping and Deng Xiaoping isn't ideological. When Deng came to power, he was challenged by a collapsing economy. To help the CCP survive, Deng had no choice but to open China up economically. By the time Xi Jinping came to power, he had inherited the problems of decades of economic reforms without political reforms, corruption and capital flight, government officials, business people, and private citizens grabbed money by whatever means. And rushed to send their assets and children overseas. She steered China away from Deng's policies and moved to the left to prevent the Communist Party from collapsing. Deng and Xi's policies both aimed to save the CCP and were just measures of self-help. They were born out of the necessity for the party to survive, and weren't ideologically different at all. It doesn't matter whether Deng Xiaoping or Xi Jinping believed in communism. Neither of them may believe in it, but that didn't prevent them from using communism to maintain their rule. In today's China, if you ask CCP members in private if they believe in communism, very few will say that they do. They join the party just to get ahead. In Soros' speech, he mentioned Deng Xiaoping's famous policy called "hide our strength and bide our time." For decades, Deng Xiaoping's stay-low-profile policy. Allow the CCP to grow into the second-largest economy globally, infiltrate the world, and engage in massive industrial espionage without the West paying attention. If you call Xi Jinping a true believer in communism, then Deng Xiaoping was a true believer in communism, who dressed up as a capitalist wannabe. Let me ask you: Which one is more harmful to the West? Which one do you prefer? I'm not saying that I'm in favor of one over the other. I'm just illustrating a point that the West often ignores. That is, in communist China, the party is bigger than the country. The party has established an elaborate system that controls the people, rewards them if they follow, and punishes them if they don't. If you don't get rid of the system but replace Xi Jinping with someone else, the new guy may turn out to be the same because. The system will make him do the same thing. The nature of the CCP and its system doesn't tolerate real reforms, doesn't tolerate capitalists. It needs capital to gain power. Once this is accomplished, it will take off the capitalist cape and show the ambition to rule the world. Communists do not want to coexist with the free world. It wants to take over the world. This is stated in the last sentence in the Communist Manifesto. So why do some people want to go back to Deng Xiaoping's time? Money. If George Soros didn't have money, he'd be powerless. His power comes from money. The same is true for the Wall Street people. They like Deng Xiaoping and the Jiang Zemin faction because those factions love money too. On that platform, they are a perfect match. Xi Jinping, however, isn't a money man. He's skeptical about Western capitalists. 
He believes that money has corrupted the CCP from within. So will Xi Jinping survive the attack from his political enemies inside and outside China joining forces? The battle is on, and it's too early to tell. But I must say that no one within the CCP is as alert as Xi in preparing for the battle, because he sees the CCP's pending demise. As early as June 24th, 2019, at a Politburo meeting, she told the attendees that dangers that could shake the party's foundation are everywhere. He warned them that small problems can become big ones, and a small pipe surge will cause a collapse. Four years ago, on January 5th, 2018, at the opening ceremony of a training session for new members of the CCP's Central Committee at the Central Party School, Xi Jinping said this about the demise of the CCP: "Our party has more than 89 million members and more than 4.5 million grassroots organizations." In my view, the only one who can bring us down is ourselves. There's no second person. So she will continue to use his anti-corruption campaign to root out his opponents. Chinese legal expert Yuan Hongbing believes that she has a better chance of beating his opponents because he controls more than 12,000 secret police who exclusively belong to the Central Commission for Discipline Inspection and the Supervisory Commission. This force monitors and arrests CCP officials above the prefecture level. When combined with the high-tech surveillance tools, Yuan believes that Xi's faction so far has the upper hand in the power struggle. So it appears our globalist elites are working for and hoping to trade one totalitarian Chinese communist dictator for another. In order to continue with the rape of the Chinese people and land, and continue raking in huge amounts more money for themselves and their CCP pals, and these fools actually believe that the CCP is the future of government for the world, and that they, our oligarch globalist elites, will continue to keep their power and wealth in some kind of bizarre oligarch communist plutocracy under the vaunted new world order. As I said earlier, it's well established that communist China is facing a number of crises that are triggering cataclysmic consequences for the Chinese people, as well as for the rest of the world. Let's look at just one aspect of life in China under the CCP: food safety concerns. This is not to say, of course, that the West and other countries haven't had or don't currently have food safety issues, but what you are about to hear should give anyone pause for thought. It's audio from the YouTube channel China Revealed that was posted February twelfth. Play soundbite two, please. Could you imagine a place where soy sauce is made with human hair, collected from salons and hospitals? Could you imagine a place where sewage can be used to manufacture cooking oil, and red dye can be added into chili sauce and noodles? A place where pigs and sheep are fed with a banned steroid to gain in weight, while babies might suffer from malnutrition and even be caused to death by fake milk powder, including a poisonous substance. That place, unfortunately, exists on Earth. As the South China Morning Post reported recently, the World Anti-Doping Agency (WADA) has once again warned athletes heading to the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing 
to exercise extreme caution when eating meat in China, as it is likely to be contaminated with the steroid clinbuterol, often called lean meat powder. Wada's statement follows the German National Anti-Doping Agency warning its athletes to avoid Chinese meat at all costs and find alternatives while in China. According to Bloomberg, clinbuterol has been added to animal feed for decades in China to induce weight gain and boost the proportion of muscle to fat. Despite Chinese authorities' ban in 1997 and repeated prohibition, a 2015 study found that the use of clinbuterol has remained widespread. Especially in the pig farming industry, athletes eating this kind of meat would produce a positive test result as a PED, performance-enhancing drug. The China Global Times said the Beijing Organizing Committee for the 2022 Olympics refuted these reports by foreign media and ensured the absolute safety of athletes. Whether food safety for the international athletes will be really assured remains unseen, but toxic food suffered by the Chinese people at large has been an unsolved alarming problem for decades. Toxic food in China beyond imagination. According to Reuters, that China's authority discovered up to half a million illegal food safety violations in the first three quarters of 2016. This figure, though impressive, might be just the tip of the iceberg. Continuous food scandals have been brought out to light in China, according to Forbes. In July 2008, 16 infants in China's Gansu province were diagnosed with kidney stones. All of them had been fed milk powder that was later found to have been adulterated with melamine, a toxic industrial compound that can fool quality testing intended to measure protein content. Four months later, approximately 300,000 babies in China got sick due to the contaminated milk, and the kidney damage led to six fatalities. The chief culprit was found to be Sanlu Group, one of the largest dairy producers in China. Chinese state media reported that 20% of Chinese dairy farms probed were detected to have produced melamine-tainted milk. The 2008 baby milk scare has rekindled memories of a 2004 baby formula tragedy. According to Reuters, in April 2004, at least 13 babies in Anhui Province died after being fed fake milk powder with almost no nutritional value. About 190 other victims were dubbed "big-headed babies" because their heads swell while their bodies become thinner due to malnutrition. In the same year, another shocking food scandal occurred. A company in Hubei had been using human hair to produce powder and liquid ingredients for soy sauce manufacturers around the country, SCMP reported. A footage by China's central television (CCTV) showed workers wearing masks using sticks to sort human hair taken from dirty bags, sometimes along with used cotton buds and even condoms. Without any cleaning, the hair was then put into a machine. Workers said that on average, 10 tons of hair were used each day. According to government officials in the CCTV report, human hair contains lead and arsenic, which are harmful to the liver, kidney, and bloodstream, and can also cause cancer if consumed. The appearance of numerous cancer villages around China is certainly not only linked to poisonous soy sauce. Chinese authorities in 2005 discovered a popular use of Sudan One red dye in food in many major Chinese cities, ranging from chili sauce to vegetables and noodles. In 2011, as Chinese state media reported that 17 noodle makers in Dongguan City, Guangdong Province, were alleged to have included ink, industrial dyes, and paraffin wax in the manufacture of noodles, normally made from sweet potatoes, in order to lower costs. 
Workers from a company claimed that roughly 50 tons of apparently tainted starch noodles had been produced by the firm and had entered the market since the beginning of its business in February 2011. In 2013, a video by Radio Free Asia went viral, showing in excruciating detail the way cooking oil is made from garbage. As Washington Post described, enterprising men and women will go through dumpsters, trash bins, gutters, and even sewers, scooping out liquid or solid refuse that contains used oil or animal parts. Then they process that into cooking oil, which they sell at below market rates to food vendors who use it to cook food that can make you extremely sick. As the Wall Street Journal reported in April 2012, after a five month investigation, Chinese authorities uncovered a gutter oil production ring. Spanning 13 cities and over 100 people. The sting yielded 3,200 tons of oil, made by boiling down the fat from rotten animal parts, and the black market producers had already sold a stunning $1.6 million worth of their product, authorities estimated. Just one month earlier, over 15,000 dead pigs had been found drifting down Huangpu River, a source of tap water nearby Shanghai. As reported by The Guardian, dead meat unfit for sale would be bought up by local pork dealers, who would then process it in illegal workshops and reintroduce the products into the legal market. One may think that the food safety issue only relates to cheap food sold in the streets or common restaurants. But a recent scandal has revealed that even food served in expensive places is not necessarily guaranteed. According to BBC, in 2019, a group of parents invited to a tree planting ceremony at one of China's most prestigious schools in Chengdu discovered rotten food in the canteen, including moldy bread, rotting meat, and seafood. Disgusted at what they saw, the parents posted photos to social media. The whole world suffers. In 2014, as Reuters reported, Shanghai Husa Food Co. Ltd. supplied products containing expired meat to McDonald's, KFC, Pizza Hut, Starbucks, and Burger King. The products were sold in various countries, including Japan. In this globalization era, contaminated food in China is able to poison people around the world. Statistics show that Chinese exports of agri food commodities amounted to USD 64.83 billion in 2019. 85% higher than in 2005. According to the World Bank, Japan, Hong Kong, the United States, Korea, and Thailand were the top importers of Chinese food products in 2019. Trade allows toxic food from China to join the food supply chains of other countries, like in cases of Chinese fresh ginger containing a dangerous pesticide in the United States in 2007, Chinese made dumplings tainted with the insecticide Methamidophos in Japan in 2008. Frozen Chinese strawberries contaminated with norovirus infecting over 11,000 children in Germany in 2012, and Chinese tinned peaches high in lead served in Australian hospitals in 2014. In July 2007, as the Wall Street Journal reported, a cargo of fresh ginger arrived at two dozen Albertsons grocery stores in California and was put on shelves. Some days later, the ginger, which came from China, was found to contain a dangerous pesticide called aldicarb. Aldicarb is regarded as a health threat under certain conditions. According to the California Department of Public Health, symptoms of aldicarb poisoning, including nausea, headaches, and blurred vision, can appear within an hour of exposure. Higher levels can induce muscle spasms and difficulty breathing. At high doses, aldicarb can be lethal. Chinese ginger is widely used in American cuisine, from soups to stir fries to cookies and tea, and present in many U.S. grocery stores. Industry analysts say many U.S. companies opt to source in China to reduce costs, but are reluctant to spend on vetting supply chains, Wall Street Journal added.
American firms that buy Chinese-grown products often require such low prices that it isn't practical for exporters and importers to run tests, claimed Clara Shu, president of Best Buy Produce International Inc. It should be noted that today China still uses about 2.7 times more fertilizer and twice as much pesticide per hectare as the world average. Over 200 million Chinese farmers used about half a million tons of pesticides and 60 million tons of fertilizer every year. CNN said, "Avoiding any products labeled made in China unnecessarily saves someone from eating Chinese food." According to food analysts, with most foods, companies are not required to label where ingredients come from, only where the food was packaged or processed. That implies possibly a frozen dinner, for example, could have 20 different ingredients from 20 different countries. Food safety issue threatens the rule of CCP. The ancient Chinese saying goes, "For the emperor, the people are everything. For the people, food is everything." That suggests guaranteeing decent food to the public should be a priority of any political regime. Yan Zhonghuang, professor at the School of Diplomacy and International Relations, Seton Hall University, once wrote on SCMP that over the past decade, food safety has also become a political issue and a test of the party state's capacity to rule. Ding Shuiliang, a Hong Kong-based China scholar, said, "A recent survey conducted by the American Chamber of Commerce in China." Has revealed that the proportion of executives who agreed that food and water safety concerns were a significant challenge for multinational corporations trying to recruit and retain foreign workers in China increased from 28 to 36 percent over the 2016-2018 period. Indeed, environmental pollution has disabled Beijing to attract and retain top talent in financial services, preventing it from replacing Hong Kong as a global financial hub. In its 2014 report, the Center for China and Globalization, a Beijing-based non-governmental think tank, revealed that food safety and air and water pollution concerns were driving elites and wealthy Chinese overseas. A more recent survey showed 56% of Chinese millionaires with a net worth of over 1.5 million U.S. dollars declared they were considering leaving the country or had already done so. SCMP noted this loss of confidence among the country's upper class raises concerns for China's leadership. With departures implying both a brain drain and damage in earning power, for the Chinese general public, those affected by food safety issues are typically voiceless. They have neither access to policymaking nor the ability to self-organize and protect their interests through state channels. Professor Yan Zhonghuang from Seton Hall University said, "For the people, food is everything. So when their everything is in danger." There is a high possibility that the Chinese people will question not only the rule of individual leaders, but also the legitimacy of the whole political regime. Xi Jinping acknowledged this menace while remarking in 2013, "If we do not do a good job in food safety and continue to mishandle the issue, then people will ask whether our party is fit to rule China." Toxic food in China. Whilst the Chinese Communist Party (CCP) is well aware that the food safety problem threatens its ruling position, it has not advanced much in the improvement of food quality for long. A biography of Mao Zedong, written by his personal physician, reveals that in the 1950s, a food procurement department under the security apparatus to supply and inspect food for the Chinese leadership was established with the help of Soviet advisers. Today, the prevalence of environmental pollution and contaminated food further fuel the parallel food system for the elite. Under the Tegong system, government officials and top executives of state-owned enterprises in China enjoy a special supply of organic foods from exclusive farms. 
As the Los Angeles Times once published a report titled "In China, What You Eat Tells Who You Are," describing such a farm as follows: At a glance, it is clear this is no run-of-the-mill farm. A six-foot spiked fence hems the meticulously planted vegetables, and security guards control a cantilevered gate that glides open only to select cars. A Chinese reporter sneaked inside and published a story about the farm producing organic food so clean that the cucumbers could be eaten directly from the vine. Since Chinese high-ranked officials are exempted from contaminated food, they are less likely to care about the quality of the food served to the public, and food safety inspection might possibly turn ineffective due to corruption. Another factor is in play. The Guardian reported experts saying that the counterfeiting problem in China was a result of its economic policy, which has motivated local provinces to pursue growth at all costs. Pirate manufacturers could even be shielded by provincial governments as long as they create profits and taxes. To make things worse, instead of promoting co-governance with industries and social groups, the CCP is increasingly suppressing social movements that appeal for environmental and food safety advancements, according to SCMP. China's investigative reporters, who once played a pivotal role in exposing food and environment scandals, are increasingly endangered. Between 2011 and 2017, their numbers dropped by nearly half, from 334 to 175. In the case of rotting food found at a high school canteen in 2019, videos emerging on social media showed hundreds of parents protesting outside the school gates in anger, and police using brute force against them. In one video, a group of policemen slammed a man against the ground. Another video showed parents clutching their eyes in pain, with some local news outlets saying police used pepper spray against them. The CCP is often proud of hundreds of millions of people being lifted out of poverty under its leadership, yet their anxiety has shifted from food security to food safety. Lured by profit, sellers neglect the fact that their toxic food is killing customers sooner or later, just in the same way as many CCP officials are indifferent to the lives of their people. Successive laws and regulations addressing food safety problems issued over the past decades proved ineffective. As you may know, I've been talking a lot lately on this program about the startling infiltration and influence by the CCP in U.S. society and government. So much so that our intelligence and other government agencies and institutions, and politicians of both major parties under that influence, have been vigorously and steadfastly opposing any and all attempts to investigate a great deal of evidence pointing to CCP hacking of voting machines. And vote manipulation across the U.S. and other meddling in our elections in support of their chosen presidential candidate, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, the real illegitimate president, to me, com- also a communist agent and George Soros puppet. This evidence also strongly suggests the CCP has been doing the same for other American politicians it controls or influences. Such as California Congressman Eric Swalwell and Governor Gavin Newsom. Let's listen to audio from former New York City Mayor and former Federal Prosecutor Rudy Giuliani's Common Sense podcast, February nine. It's titled "How Deep Is the CCP's Infiltration in the U.S.?" Because of its length, I broke what I recorded from this broadcast into two parts. Here's the first part. Play sound by three, please. Hello, this is Rudy Giuliani, and I'm back with another episode of Rudy's Common Sense. And today's episode、uh, really、uh, couldn't be any more timely. It's going to be about、uh, China, 
We're going to focus uh, on the Olympics, of course, but on China in general. And there's no one better to talk to than Gordon Chang. Gordon, uh, you you all know Gordon. Gordon. Gordon is an author. Gordon happens to be a lawyer. You may not know that, but a very accomplished lawyer. Uh, he's been an author on China for several decades now. Uh, one of the people who really saw through the dual nature of China. If there ever was a dual nature, I'm going to ask him that question because I'm not sure. And his most recent, his most recent book on technology, uh, you, you really have to read it because just like, uh, the collapse, uh, a book, which, uh, was written about a decade ago, uh, Gordon has seen things in advance that others have not. And I'm talking about people in good faith now who I really believe there are a lot of people in good faith who made a mistake about China. And they're the ones who are acknowledging it now. The ones who aren't, well, that's a different story. But uh, I want to talk to him about China in general, but I want to start with what's on all of our minds, the Olympics. So, G- Gordon, um, how do we ju- how do we as a decent country who has a declaration of independence that's uh, one of the oldest great documents of liberty in the world? We don't we're not consistent as we should be, but we stand for liberty and freedom and. This nation is the outlier. I don't think there's any nation, certainly in the current world, that slaughtered as many of its own people. It continues to do it right in our face with genocide going on, and it's hard to even count. How can we have a, a, a how can we participate in this? It almost seems like it's, I hate to use the word sin, sinful to, to, to do it. How do you how do you understand why we're doing it and the argument for and against it and and then your conclusion on it if you, if you wouldn't mind? Yeah, the Biden administration certainly is conflicted. They want a long term relationship with China. They want China's cooperation on for things like climate change and Iran, and so they're doing the bare minimum when it comes to issues involving human rights. And that means the Biden administration tried to cut the baby in half with this diplomatic boycott. American diplomats not going to the opening and closing ceremonies of uh, the games. President Biden not going to Beijing. Um, But we're allowing our athletes to participate. This is a difficult case for the United States because, of course, everyone wants to have the athletes have that opportunity to participate, to compete. And for some of them, you know, the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, But on the other hand, we got to remember, as you pointed out, China is committing genocides, uh, and we're a party, as is China, to the Genocide Convention of 1948, which requires us to prevent and to punish acts of genocide. Now, there are two big genocides that are occurring now. One of them is we've talked about with the Uyghurs, the Kazakhs, and the other Turkic minorities. I mean, they've, they've been detained in the millions. People in those concentration camps have been killed. We know that, Mr. Mayor, because China actually built a crematorium between two of these camps. Um, But there's also officially sanctioned rape, um, uh, basically organ organ harvesting, um, torture. And the Chinese government has organized the slavery of uh, Turkic minorities. So there is genocide and there are crimes against humanity. And these atrocities are comparable to those of the Third Reich prior to the mass exterminations of 1941. But there's another genocide that's occurring, and that is 
Although we don't know 100% the origins of the COVID-19, though it looks like it came from a lab, we do know 100% one thing, Mr. Mayor, and that is that Chinese leaders deliberately spread this beyond China's borders. They lied about contagiousness, and while they were locking down their own country, they were pressuring other countries not to impose travel restrictions and quarantines on arrivals from China. You put those two things together, and it's clear that they wanted to spread this disease around the world. That's 5.7 million people who have died from this disease outside China, and that includes more than 900,000 Americans. We crossed the 900,000 mark a couple days ago. So those are two genocides. And as much as we'd like to have the athletes participate, nonetheless, we can't ignore the mass killing both inside and outside China. Inside China, the genocides that we know about, the, the most prominent are the Uyghur people, and that's uh, usually reported that about 2 million are in various forms of concentration camps, camps uh, ranging to death camps, uh, slavery camps. The others are also subject the ones who aren't imprisoned are subject to all forms of uh, degradation and slavery. And so how, ma- how many roughly are there of, of uh, Uyghurs in, uh, in China that, that could be subjected to this, to this kind of torture? The estimates are that there have been between 1 and 3.3 million Uyghurs who either are in the camps or have been in the camps. And these numbers have been derived from satellite imagery by looking at the number of facilities and by trying to guess the number of people coming in and going out. Um, So it is a big range, um, but we're talking about people in the millions, um, not the hundred thousands, but the millions. And the idea is to eliminate them as as a people so that they would no longer be a problem for China. Yes, it's to eliminate all um, cultural identity. And this is true not just for Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and other Turkic minorities. It's true for the Tibetans and for Mongolians and for other peoples. Now, China has this notion that there are 56 ethnic groups in China. In other words, 55 minorities. Um, China wants to eliminate all minority consciousness. And that's why there is sterilization, forced abortions, uh, extreme birth control, And those measures constitute genocide as defined in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. So so the largest focus is the Uyghurs. But then when you get to these smaller groups, it's their desire to eliminate them as well. You said Turkish people. How how do they how do they define Turkish? I mean, Turkish is a pretty broad, pretty broad subject. Turkic minorities is the is the phrase, and, and that includes, of course, the Uyghurs, who are the largest of the Turkic minorities in China. But it also includes Kazakhs, um, who are a fair number in China, and there are others. Um, and these are people who live in what China calls the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, what China believes is the northwestern part of the country, um, which was once independent, uh, East Turkestan. And there are many Uyghurs who desire to retain, to go back to that independent status. But we do know that, for instance, um, Christians are being held in black jails throughout China. Um, and these are uh, in the uh, persecution of Christians, which was already severe um, under uh, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, the previous leaders, 
has been stepped up considerably under um, Xi Jinping. Way Muslims, H-U-I, way Muslims who are indistinguishable from Han have been subject to repression recently under Xi Jinping. And, and this is generally um, a stepped up uh, measures of, of coercion, not only against minorities, but also against everybody. China is moving back to totalitarianism under Xi Jinping. So it affects everyone in China. And one other thing, Mr. Mayor, um, Buddhism is considered to be in China a local religion and has been left alone. And many people, including Communist Party members, have been Buddhist, although they shouldn't be. They're supposed to be atheists. But under Xi Jinping, for the first time, we see persecution of Buddhists, which means that Xi Jinping is going not just after people of, uh, who are Muslims, not just after Christians. They're going after all people of any faith. And the idea and the idea being the communist uh, uh, doctrine that faith, that belief in God, belief in religion would interfere with the higher uh, the, the higher uh, authority, which would be your loyalty to the government, that it will interfere with your blind loyalty to socialism and communism. Absolutely. Uh, Xi Jinping demands absolute obedience. There is no tolerance for anything that is not uh, doctrinaire communism and atheism. And so that's why he has stepped up uh, his campaign against uh, people of all faith. It, those are great questions. Um, China, of course, is a big place. Um, you've got uh, the common times it hasn't expressed its militancy. Sorry, we ran into a little technical problem there. Kept, <clears throat> I guess I didn't end the soundbite where I should have. But anyway, as Gordon Shanks stated, the CCP is guilty of genocide, both within China and without it by deliberately releasing the COVID-19 virus on the rest of the world. It's been documented that the CCP has made biological warfare the centerpiece of its military strategy. Recently, besides its harsh treatment of the Chinese people over COVID outbreaks in China, there are reports of outbreaks there of hemorrhagic fever illness. Dr. Li Mingyan, a medical doctor and PhD who was working at the University of Hong Kong with the World Health Organization on the COVID pandemic, before she fled China, reported that the COVID virus was definitely created by People's Liberation Army scientists. She now lives in hiding in the United States and says the CCP is trying to kill her. In the past several days, Dr. Yan has announced on alternative media programs that her contacts have informed her that the PLA has also deliberately developed a new strain of hemorrhagic fever with a longer incubation period of a month to six weeks, and have been using the Winter Olympics in Beijing to infect attendees there and spread a new pandemic around the world. As I understand it, the family of hemorrhagic fever viruses include dengue fever, yellow fever, and Ebola, and include symptoms of very high fever and both internal and external bleeding, such as from the eyes, nose, and ears. There is no known cure for it. Although Dr. Yan claims the CCP has determined that a very expensive cancer drug known as Darzalex, generic name Daratumumab, can effectively treat their developed strain. Generally, however, there is only what is called supportive care for hemorrhagic fever patients, and these diseases are 50 to 70% fatal. 
I sincerely hope that Dr. Yan and her colleagues are wrong about this. Here's the second part of Rudy Giuliani's Common Sense Program podcast interview with Gordon Chang. Play sound by four, please. If I could take you back a bit. Uh, to me, you are one of the few people that saw at a very, very early stage that the fantasy that we had about China was was uh, exactly that, a fantasy. Because uh, I, without getting very specific about the years, when you come out of the Kissinger-Nixon uh, developing the relationship, using it as a wedge against the Soviet Union, you, you come to a point where people are starting to notice and, and would write that there are two Chinas. There, there are the almost like the hawks and the doves, the, the Chinese that believe that military power, raw economic power is a way to be the leader of the world, the dominant nation in the world and to suppress the United States. Then there's the argument that there are people who are more, uh, who are more dovish and they believe that a great economic relationship with either the United States or the world power powers is what they want, but they're not militaristic. If that was ever true, that ended a long time before we noticed it. So you've written about this. So I have two questions for you. Was it ever true? What I, what I said was that ever true. And then if it was true, how did it, how did it break off? So <laughs> that dovish part <laughs> is a, a, a distant memory. <laughs> it, those are great questions. Um, China, of course, is a big place. Um, you've got uh, the Communist Party, which has always been militant. Um, sometimes it hasn't expressed its militancy, um, but it has always had this view that it should rule the world. And uh, it has been brutal, uh, not only to foreigners, but especially to its own people. Um, we don't know exactly how many people, uh, Chinese people have died, um, but it's in the tens of millions, low estimates, 30 million, higher estimates, 80 million. Uh, this is the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, um, the anti-rightist campaigns, anti-landlord campaigns. Uh, the toll on the Chinese people is the highest in history. Um, so the Communist Party has blood on its hands. Now, the Chinese people, of course, um, we have seen um, the best of humanity in China, um, but we've also seen the worst. Uh, for us Americans, um, you know, it's been complicated. It's been hard to see, um, largely because Beijing is a master in propaganda and because they've closed their country off. Um, so it's difficult to understand a lot of this. I had the advantage of having a father who lived in China, was born in China, um, who um, was uh, went through some, you know, World War II, was fortunate to leave to come to this country was fortunate to be able to stay in this country. And the other thing that I've had advantage of is that um, Lydia, my wife, and I actually lived and worked in China for um, five uh, years, from August 1996 to May 2001. And when you live there, you get a very different view of the country than if you just come in. I, I can remember... Both Lydia and I were really, really optimistic about China when we arrived in August of 1996. And I can remember um, her on the phone saying, Mom, China's not communist anymore. And I agreed with her. And this is what my clients would say as they, you know, they buzzed into Shanghai. They stayed at the Grand Hyatt, which is one of the most spectacular hotels in the world, and would say China's not communist anymore. 
But, you know, we lived and worked there. We traveled around the country. We talked to people. We saw things. And it was evident to us that China was still communist and that it was fragile. And so we saw a very different side of the country. For, for decades, we had this engagement policy where we tried to integrate China into the international system because we thought that as it became powerful, it would become benign. It would see that it would have a stake in the existing order. You know, Robert Zolik, when he was deputy secretary of state, gave that sp- famous speech in 2005 about China becoming a responsible stakeholder, quote unquote, in the international system. And there was hope that this would occur. Um, also, at the end of the Cold War, um, we sort of um, we said history had ended. That was Francis Fukuyama, the famous oh, sure, political sure, scientist, yes, yeah. saying that, um, yes, events would continue to occur, but um, humankind's um, ideological evolution had ended in modern liberal democracy and market oriented capitalism. So when you have that view, then you can say, oh, well, you know, China's going to come around. But Xi Jinping has made it clear that he not only wants to compete with the United States. I mean, I I don't grudge him that he wants to be number one. Every country wants to be number one. But the difference is that Xi Jinping wants to take down the existing international system, which is based on the Westphalian principles of mutual recognition of sovereignty. And he's replacing it with the notion that China not only has the right to rule Tianxia or all under heaven, it has the obligation to rule all under heaven. And Xi Jinping has taken this further because since 2018, his officials have been talking about the moon and Mars as a part of the People's Republic of China. So um, this is the most ambitious ruler in history. He not only wants to rule the entire planet Earth, he wants to rule the near parts of the solar system as well. But what do you think our response to this should be in the U.S., given all of these changing factors? What, 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 what would be your advice to an administration, and I'm saying this, you're not, that seems to be paralyzed in being able to do anything about China. And I don't know if it's ideological, if it's corruption, or it's a combination of both. Yeah, I I agree with your assessment of the administration, by the way. Um, My advice would be we've got to cut our contacts with China. Um, We've got to cut trade. We've got to cut investment. um, We've got to cut technical cooperation. And by cut, I mean sever. And the reason I say this is because China uses every point of contact to try to overthrow our government. During 2020, they were very active in trying to change the outcome of the presidential election. They were in this from the very beginning. They were supporting Biden over Sanders in the Democratic primary. They were very much in support of Biden during the general election. Um, And they were fomenting violence on our streets. They were actually surreptitiously and even openly um, encouraging Americans to commit violent acts. And that's an attempt to overthrow our government. And we have been overwhelmed. Our FBI is overwhelmed. Our local law enforcement is overwhelmed. Our institutions are being overwhelmed by China. And until we can understand and manage our contacts with China, we have to cut those contacts in order to save our republic. I know this sounds extreme, um, but we can go through the things that China has done to try to actually advocate the violent overthrow of our government using its contacts in all of our communities to do that. And so um, we haven't adequately defended ourselves 
And until we um, get to that point, we need to end our relations with China. Would you agree that we really, until now, didn't have any sense of how deeply entrenched they had become, both through corruption, public relations, lobbying, and all sorts of in our in our society, even in in our society. I agree, and I'll give you an example. Um, and this is true of both parties, and it's true of liberals and conservatives. But I'll I'll take the example of Eric Swalwell because it's graphic. The first time the Ministry of State Security contacted Swalwell was not when he was sitting on the House Intelligence Committee, where of course he'd be great value for China. They first contacted him when he sat on the City Council of Dublin City, California. That means he he was not the only one that Beijing was grooming. They were grooming, had to be hundreds, if not thousands of Americans, in the hope that one or two of them would be of value to China. Swalwell, as I mentioned, is only one of hundreds or thousands that the Ministry of State Security has groomed. So, Yes, the penetration is throughout American society. And that's the reason why I say we need to cut our contacts with China, because we don't have a handle on this, Mr. Mayor. We don't have a handle on it, indeed. As you probably know, Giuliani and all other podcasters utilizing major social social media, which are now virtually all owned by pro-communist Chinese supporters, cannot make further mention of allegations of 2020 election fraud. But clearly, at least for me, there was veiled reference to that here. Americans either unaware of, oblivious to, or in denial about the penetration and corruption of our country by the CCP do so at their peril. It remains in doubt if there's still enough time and national will to fend off this impending political, social, and economic apocalypse we are facing. That's it for another episode of our show. As always, we hope you found the content of interest and value. You can watch a podcast of today's show when it's posted in the next few days on the Jim Benson Show page at bbsradio.com. Look for us again in this same time slot two weeks from today. Have a good rest of your day and evening.